Drive by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Howdy, friend. Welcome to Drive by Cinema, season four, episode two. Indeed. It's the podcast where we watch the movies so you don't have to feel like you have to. Absolutely, yeah. I'm Paul. This is my co-host, Paul. Thank you. And this is my co-host, Richard. Hey. I've got a couple of things to catch up on, Paul. As usual, I've got a bit of admin to do. Last week, we... No, week before, actually, we talked about Lola. On Lola, we talked about the disappearance of the gasometer from the urban landscape. Yes. Yes. Listener and occasional guest, Jolien, Ah. posted a picture of an active gasometer, one that's in operation. At this moment in time. Right now, yeah. But it was a very small one, oh. and it was at a facility that produces methane from the fermentation of sewage or something, I think. Gasometers oh. are still useful for storing gas when it is locally produced, I suppose, is the message there. Okay. And he also explained the history why? of the gasometer and why we don't they're no longer anymore. used. At the time that Lola was set, the major kind of source for gas was town gas, which was made by effectively heating coal. coal. Right. And the resulting gas that came off the coal was stored in gasometers close by where it was produced and where it was going to be consumed in the different towns. And Of course, quite a large portion of town gas was carbon monoxide, which made it actually quite dangerous and was the reason why people could kill themselves by shoving their heads into the oven without the ah. gas being ignited. Now, since we switched over to natural gas, a lot of which came from the North Sea, those systems come out of the ground at a much higher pressure, and our pipe networks have been upgraded to take much higher pressure gas. So that, in fact, all of the gas that's in that's in a gasometer can be held in the the, the pipe network itself by compression. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing, right? So they're really pointless now. They're really pointless because... So we can store all our gas in our pipes as we're supplying it. Yeah, the the network is energised to a much higher pressure. Ah. The merry march of progress. Paul, there is another controversy about Oppenheimer. We did briefly touch on the whole thing about them not showing very much about the destruction and devastation of the two bombs that were dropped on Japan during the war. Mm -hmm. But David Baddiel has recently... Made a complaint. Yeah. Have you seen that? Do you know what I'm talking about? That the lead actor, Peaky Blinder that he is, is not <laughs> Jewish. Jewish. Therefore, yeah. doesn't have the lived experience to play Oppenheim. What do you think about this controversy? I mean, it's acting, isn't it? He's, I guess, professionally trained to be able to represent a variety of people. I don't, I don't know, really. It is a bit awkward. I mean, I think... Badil's point really is that Hollywood is very keen to avoid the issue of casting a white person in lots of other ethnicities. Mm-hmm. You know, you wouldn't put someone in blackface or the equivalent, would you? Not days. anymore, no. But until no. very recently, yeah. Hollywood's yes. suddenly become extremely squeamish about its own bad habits, yeah. For Jews versus non-Jews, the same provision is not, is not given, is it? That's a fair point. It's mostly Hollywood squeamishness, you know. And why would they be peddling this narrative unless they felt extremely guilty about what they've done in the past? Yeah, but it's not Hollywood making this complaint, is it? It's David Baddiel. No, but what I'm saying is the sudden 
what he's making a complaint about the sudden need to okay, to you know have ethnically representative actors in roles is a sudden counter reaction, isn't it, to how Hollywood itself once did things? I don't really see any big problem with it. But not, not to say he cast... doesn't make he makes a legi- perfectly legitimate point though. Why the double standards? Yeah. Uh, you know. yeah, I mean, well, it's a weighty question, isn't it, for a light-hearted podcast about films? But look, ultimately, is it really true that a Jewish person can't see themselves in another person that basically looks like them? I don't understand that really. As in terms of representation, minorities, etc., they're physically represented, and he is a Jewish character being represented, right? So that's. Hmm. Or not that he made a big deal of it. I don't know. I've not read what Badil said about it, but I, I guess it's one. You know, can this actor, without lived experience, portray a Jew? My answer would be probably, yeah, he's a good actor. Two, should Jewish audiences see Jewish actors in roles? Yeah, I think that's probably a good idea to do that, isn't it, generally? Yeah. But three, I think he's making a more serious point, which, well, the fourth point I think you've already made out, which is, why is the double standard there? I don't know, and it's wrong. I agree. But the third is, are we not sweeping something under the carpet by, in such a pivotal role, by not having Jewish people in a Jewish role? Because the Holocaust was all part of World War II, wasn't it? Oh, my God. Are you saying the Nazis won in the end? (laughs) Oh, no, 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 I'm not saying that. Although, Well, some people might. It's crazy. So, hmm. Right, okay, those are very, very dense and weighty topics that I've managed to wade into without thinking about. So doubtless you'll be hearing a retraction from me next week. Well, we can just edit it all out. What we can't do is edit out this musical interlude. We can't. It's an absolutely essential part of the torture method, yeah. So, Paul, what am I going to ask you? You're going to ask me not to fact dump on this movie and I'm going to fact dump on this movie but you're, you're going to ask me fact dump did you say fact dump uh, oh, I so, see so you're oh. going to ask me the name of this right. movie aren't you? well if you want if you have it to hand I don't know if it's power of the dog or the power of the dog but it's one or the other I'm pretty certain about that the power of the dog I oh, think I'll just correct my nose the power of the dog and it's from 2021 okay and it's been called several things a modern western or a revisionist western I guess we can debate that later, by the esteemed director Jane Campion, I'm guessing. Jane Campion, yeah. Uh, Now, I saw one of her early and highly acclaimed works. The Piano. Yeah, I saw that in Cambridge. I think that was the first movie I ever went to, to a cinema, on my own. Oh, you poor thing. Was it good? It's quite impactful and moving. You've seen it, surely. Did you not join... Christ Movie Club. Jesus Christ. Oh, you mean the college? I see, yeah. yeah. No, I, di- I didn't. Was I supposed to? Is that the famous one? Well, I think that's where you all, you know, the Cambridge students, they're all taking a bottle of red wine each, don't they? Into the right. auditorium. Oh, and they go to the cinema. So it's not like a normal college film club where they get, like, 16mm prints of movies and play no, them. No, they just go to the cinema with bottles of posh wine, you know. And whoop and holler at the screen, kind of. Oh, well, if you're in a town college, I guess you can do that, can't you? I guess you can. I seem to remember that they had a particular fixation on Surprise, Surprise, because he was big at the time, wasn't he? Peter Greenway films. Ah, yeah, of course. Well, that makes sense. Which would look good with Sonne Lumiere projected onto a college 
Well, but they never did that because they weren't allowed. <laughs> okay. It's a very small college, isn't it? I guess so. Yeah, nestled there in the heart of the shopping district of Cambridge. Oh, next to Safeways, just past Master's Parks and behind Sainsbury's. Right next to the bus station as well. Right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's somewhat, you know, it's not very romantic, really, its location, is it, really? But it's in <laughs> prime real estate location, let's put it that way. Anyway, this is wildly off topic. All it which is. is to say, have you seen the piano? No, and I would have no reason to want to see it. And I think I have no reason to have seen it when I came out of it either. It doesn't look like a kind of movie that would appeal to me. It's about what? A young girl who learns to play the piano? It's about... It's in New Zealand way back right. when. And someone takes a lot of effort to bring a piano to shore. Like right. a, you know, an upright piano. Yeah. And... Holly Hunter stars as this so what, European... It's a metaphor for unwanted, unwanted Western middle-class values. In, in ah, and here land. we go. Harvey Keitel stars as a Maori, I think. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. So 1993, <laughs> that was Hollywood doing its thing. And you see his, his naked ass. You might see him fully naked, actually. Yeah, you don't often see Harvey Keitel naked, do you? I don't know. Uh, uh, well, what's the pity? Anyway, yeah, maybe. Anyway, I think he has wow. sex with Holly Hunter during the film. Again, another thing you don't get in films these days very often. So, but it made an impression. She won awards for it. So she did. Yeah, James Campbell. Way early in the start of her career, she wrote the screenplay. It's based on a very famous novel called The Power by, of the Dog by Thomas Savage. Thomas, Thomas Savage. Yeah, who lived a very long time. Lived to the age, grand old age of eighty-eight years. Died, I don't know where it was, 1985, I think, having written seven or eight very well-received novels of the West kind of thing. Yeah, he was born in about 1915, I think. So he lived through the period that this novel that this novel is set in, that this mm-hmm. film is set in, which uh, is 1925 in Montana, it says at the beginning of the film. Now, I had to look at where on earth Montana is, and it's right at the top of DUSA, bordering Canada, just east of Seattle and Washington, isn't it? Which might make you realise why they filmed it all in New Zealand. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't know who did the cinematography, but it was very good. So I guess we've got to get on to the cast here. I just want to say, 1925 is a lot later than you might think of for a cowboy movie westerns yeah Yeah. the wild west cowboy movies it was the year when cowboy movies were starting to be made though wasn't it interesting this is the idea that the wild west is as much geography as it is a time period the west has been won I think well definitely been won by the time of 1925 hasn't it but also you get 1920s fashion don't you Mm. Um, I think it is yeah do you mean the Charleston style yeah. yeah. So we've got a pair of brothers, Phil and George. George. Phil yeah. played by Benedict Cabbage Snatch. Yes, sorry. <laughs> and George played by Jesse Plowers or Plows, I think. Plemons. Plemons. Thank you. Yeah. He's famous. I don't know where I've seen him before, though. Oh, he was in, in particular, he was in Breaking Bad, wasn't he? Ah, yes, he was. Okay. And they are a pair of well-off brothers. They've done well with their cattle ranch. Opening scene, we kind of... Well, I guess we'll get on to that in a second. But they're driving cattle and they stop off at Rose's restaurant. That is Kirsten Dunst. Kirsten Dunst, who, of course, I think we first saw on the big screen in... 
Yes. <laughs> in Interview with a Vampire, right? No way. She was the little girl vampire, wasn't she? In that, I, I think that's right. That's incredible. How did you know that? It's on. Don't tell me it's on IMDb. Did you know that from? Obviously, it is on IMDb. That's where I'm going to check that I'm not mistaken. But uh, the truth is, I'm sure I always remember her because she's got particular teeth, hasn't she? Her canines are quite cute. Oh, and so I always remember seeing her. Well, she's a vampire. Yeah. 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 But I guess I guess she was just typecast as a vampire, wasn't she? Yeah, Interview with a Vampire, yeah, she was definitely in it, yeah. Yeah, and she has a son, Peter, who is played by Cody Smith-McPhee. Phil is an unreconstructed, like, cowboy guy, isn't he? He's tough. Yeah. He's got a, a leathery kind of uh, exterior to him. Yes. He acts tough. Whereas his brother George, his brother George is a bit more studious, reserved, not really cut out, maybe. For maybe more urbane, we might even say. Yeah. Almost like city folk, you might say. It later comes as a surprise to find out that Phil actually is, is Yale-educated, isn't he? That's what we find out much later, but you're right, yeah. Uh, Phil, though, at this point, he's calling his brother Fatso. That's his nickname for him. Not very nice to him. He's basically oh, not know. a nice guy, is he? I mean, did Fatso carry derogatory tone by them? George didn't seem best pleased about it, did, did he? Did he not? Oh. A lot of smoking going on in this film, isn't there? A lot of rollies on the range. Yeah. Roll on the range. That, <laughs> Just jumping ahead a bit, okay. This movie is, to some extent, ostensibly about everyday psychological intimidation and goading, isn't it? Gaslighting and manipulation, yeah. yeah. <sighs> Except, are we to assume it was going on all the time? Because the way it was presented was like, it only happened the times that it's on the screen. And I thought, well, that's... N- okay, they're being nasty, but it's not really enough to have a character breakdown because of it, is it? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a shrewd point, which we may come back to. Because harassment but, has to be repeated, doesn't it? You can't commit a hate crime by calling somebody fat so once, can you? He does do it a few times oh, early on in the film. Right, he? okay. He also, so, but you're right, uh, Phil's unpleasant, isn't he? He's, he's nasty, he's got a bit of street to him, yeah. And George thinks he should uh, take a bath. He, he has a go at him for not bathing. But is that gaslighting too, or is that, you know... Because it's interesting here how, how we're led to assume some people are actually nasty and it doesn't really turn out that way, does it? You're quite right, yeah. But what we see, though, is they all arrive, all 12 of them, all the farmhands, Phil and George, arrive mm-hmm. with... The, they're driving the cattle, aren't they? Yeah. I don't, I don't know why you drive cattle. I don't know, it's beautiful shots, nonetheless. It's a common thing, isn't it? We know that one thing that happens to cattle out on the range is they sometimes apparently get anthrax and drop down dead. You don't go near the body because there's anthrax. Do they still get anthrax? No. I don't know. I don't know. Because, yeah, I mean, we have anthrax on that little island off the coast of Scotland, don't yeah. we? I mean, no, no one has gone there for 50 years or something. Is it, but, is it just lethal or is it highly contagious? It's just I, hard- well, it's, it is pretty lethal. Well, it's really lethal. I think it's, it's moderately contagious, ah, I think, yeah. Okay, moderately contagious. Right. I get. I think now, it can last a long time as well in spores, can't it? That's right. That's, yeah. So it's, is it fungal? We assume. I don't know. I guess we can. No oh, clue. Here we no go clue. next week. Right. So yeah, but <laughs> I would have thought Karen would have dispensed with those dead calves pretty quickly. Right. Well, you know, the the vul- vultures just swoop and eat. Yeah, I think the vultures would be on it in a matter of hours, wouldn't they? Coyotes. Yeah. Mountain lions. 
Despite Phil's tough exterior and his kind of Western macho ways, he doesn't go near the anthrax infested. Oh, and he tells the other farmhands not to as well. But they arrive in the town, the little town, and I think they first go to the brothel, but they've got seats booked at... I mean, in in an oldie-worldie kind of Western, this would be the inn, but actually I think Rose is... She didn't drink, and she didn't really serve alcohol. It's really a restaurant, isn't it? It's just a restaurant, yeah. yeah. A diner. I suppose this diner is a better word. Yeah. It's popped up on the prairie, in the shadow of the mountains. Maybe she's newly arrived. Well, we know it? that her husband is no longer with us. Because yeah, the very beginning of the film is actually her son, Peter, does a voiceover, and he's talking about... Ah, yeah. What is he saying? His father has passed away, and he wants happiness for his mum. And yes. that kind of sets up the film. You'll easily forget that if you don't write it down. <laughs> now, young lad Peter is rake thin. He's quite effeminate in some senses. He's a sweet pea of a boy, isn't he? You know, he's grown all gangly and in odd directions. He makes paper flowers out of, well, paper, and he draws butterflies and things. And his mum... To the extent, in the vernacular of time, you might even call him a sissy. Yeah. So he's coded gay. I'm not sure that we know that well, he is gay. He's coded gay, definitely. Is he actually is he, gay? Does we it don't matter? Know. Well, it does we matter in the end. It. Yeah. Is she playing with the audience here by doing this? Maybe. Remember, this is taken from a novel. And I think it steers quite close to the text of the novel, I think, oh. from what I gather. I haven't read it. We'll come back to that because there is an interesting ambiguity to it all. When they arrive, though, in the diner, you know, obviously Phil is being kind of rude and rambunctious and he's basically taking the mick out of Peter isn't he in front of the guys he sets fire to the paper flowers with his cigarette at one point Uh, yeah now he's lisp I mean Peter doesn't have a lisp he doesn't no he puts a lisp on on, you know Peter is really really upset by this and I I couldn't really see why you know (laughs) sure I guess he doesn't have to deal well on the other hand he's out there in the in the West, presumably he does have to deal with this stuff all the time. Oh, right. So he's, he's, quite, he's, quite, he's quite young, isn't he? I mean, he's, what, 18, 19? Yeah. Or something, that kind of age. The way it's presented, he sees it as a fundamental attack on his character. But, I mean, they're, they're ranchers, aren't they? They're cattle wranglers. Okay. I mean, they're just saying, or maybe you could say, Benedict's character, is feel, is simply saying, you know, we do a hard job and you don't. All you do is bring food to a table. Which in itself is is a fair point, isn't it? Not that you want to ram that down somebody's throat. It's rude to do. So, but I, I, I at first I couldn't really see why somebody would react so strongly to something they should be used to in their job anyway. Do you know what I mean? Particularly during that era. Perhaps he's also feeling sensitive because I don't know exactly how recent it is, but his father has died mm-hmm. relatively recently. I think uh, he goes to put flowers on the grave, doesn't he? So maybe that contributes to it. Yeah, I mean, burning burning your artwork, I guess, would be, would be upsetting, wouldn't it? The other thing about Phil is, particularly when talking to his brother George, he quite often, and does this throughout the movie, refers to a mentor of his, theirs, mm. but mostly Phil's, called Bronco Henry. Bronco <laughs> Henry, yeah? Apparently taught them ranching, mm-hmm. and they would go out for dinner, hunting elk and stuff like that. He's always going on about Bronco Henry. He's got a figure. box of Bronco Henry's effects in his little bivouac, it later turns out. And he also carries uh, Bronco Henry's scarf around with him. 
So there we go. Oh, yeah. We'll later Silk find out. Scarf. Yeah, yeah. So, so they're in the diner. Rose has installed a... Oh, player piano. Player piano. There is another word for them, isn't there? Pianola? Um, pianola, perhaps, yeah. And, uh, yeah, she has a bit of a hard time. It seems controlling the guests, but she needs the custom, doesn't she? So so she's struggling on the kitchen. And I, I would say for an 18-year-old boy, Peter's a great help, isn't he, really? Devoted to his mother, it seems. Yeah, and while Phil gives his crew a story about Bronco Henry jumping over a bunch of furniture on an old nag, I think George is concerned that his rowdy party and his brother mm-hmm. are making a nuisance of themselves. More concerned, maybe, because has he had a glimpse of Rose in the kitchen? I think so, yeah. Ah, I think he may be... A little sweet yeah. on it. Peter, as you say, he's really upset by all of this, leaves the kitchen and goes outside and hula hoops. Yes. <laughs> which, um, I don't think the hula hoop was invented in 1925. It wasn't. But- now, you're saying Cody Gay... A lot of stuff, a lot of matter online, and not from the reviews of the movie, is saying, is Peter coded Asperger's or autistic? Ah, yeah. Well, that is also true, actually. It's, yeah, it, I think that is true. He's a very studious young man, isn't he? He mm-hmm. certainly plans to go to medical school, which we are going to discover. End of scene, basically. No apologies from Phil. Does he even pay the bill, does he? Cheeky no, thing. he leaves his brother to do that. I think his brother is more suited to do that. They all go off to the brothel, don't they? They do. All but the cowboys. They're the most successful ranchers, I guess, in the neighbourhood. And we later find out they're, they're very well off, aren't they? Yeah, well, I guess they own a lot of land for some reason. Well, because they carpet bagged it. But... <laughs> yeah, exactly. George. <laughs> in the evening, Phil and George are sleeping. They have the same room, oddly. They have this big mansion, don't they? Kind yeah. of out in the middle of... Out in the middle of New Zealand for some reason. Well, they're bachelors. I think it would be normal in those days to share a room, wouldn't it? Yeah, it saves on heating, doesn't it? As they go to bed, George is telling Phil that Rose was upset about how he treated her boy. Act two, because this film is divided into chapters or acts, isn't it? Yeah. When, do we, when does Peter get carted off to college? Is about it now, I think. About now. But we see Phil looking out toward the hills wistfully, and it's explained that nobody else, all the cowhands are sort of muttering, that they don't really know what he's looking at or what he's seeing over there in the hills. <laughs> this becomes really important later. It does. It? I don't know why. George is going into town. He's got a little car, and he zooms up into town to go see Rose. Yeah, some more he's... nice shots of, you know, cars puttering across an early century landscape. Again, another thing you don't see in old-fashioned westerns is a little, like, Ford Model T or whatever it is, do you? No, I mean, if there were any cars back in the time of those westerns, they would be electric <laughs> cars, wouldn't they? Most likely. <laughs> and a range of, what, 20 miles is not going to get you very far out of New York, is it? So. <laughs> and Rose is disgruntled by a bunch of afternoon drinkers in diner. One of who's the um, doctor and the other is the magistrate or judge. So George pitches in, doesn't he, and he because Peter's out or something. So he waits on them with to assist Rose, and, uh-huh. you know, just help her out. Symbolically, with the white flannel that Peter would lay over his left arm, his serving flannel, that Phil had mocked. So yeah, harshly. it's for the drips, said Pete. Oh, that's when he mocks his lips, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. For the drips. <laughs> <laughs> Which really hurts Peter, but I, you know, I, I would say even now, it's a fair pass, I think. <laughs> Phil is upset about his brother trying to get with this Rose woman. He thinks that she's like a gold digger. He actually writes a letter to his parents, I think, 
sort of telling on his brother. He does, Saying yeah. he's, he's trying to get tangled up with a suicide widow. So we now know that Rose's husband, Peter's father, killed himself. No sooner has he revealed that he did that, George drops the news on him that he married Rose on Sunday. Yeah, he's proper Gretna Green, yeah. And Phil is so angry about this, he goes out to the stable and beats his horse up. <laughs> he does! I've no, I forgot that scene! Now, that's shocking. Shocking. <laughs> this, this is an example of behaviour that, that is truly terrible. That we wouldn't put up with today. But he beats up his horse, doesn't he, poor thing? Chapter three. This is where Peter is going to boarding school, I think, to learn to be a doctor. George, meanwhile, is discussing with Rose that they're inviting the governor and their parents, his parents, to a dinner party that they're going to throw at the ranch. And they also go for a picnic, don't they, in Great Landscape, and she teaches him how to dance and stuff. When does she get the present off George? Is this early on in this scene or later on? I don't know. What what does she... The baby grand piano. Oh, God, yeah, there you go, the piano. So, Jane Campion is out having another moving piano. <laughs> but it's an indication of how rich these brothers are, you know, because, I mean, those are expensive things to buy. And she's yeah, like, oh, I no, mean, you can't. Don't buy me piano. He's like, I've already bought they'd it. They'd be a major piece of, like, home entertainment tech, wouldn't they? Yes. That, that era. Yeah, it'd be like... like owning a home cinema system. It would be like a home cinema system, yeah. So it's a big draw, you know, particularly out in the but, Wild West where there ain't no cinemas and there ain't... There ain't, you know, there's probably not a radio station out there, is there? So, yeah. Rose said that she used to play mm. for the silent movies. She did in the, the pit, yeah. In the yeah. movie house, the picture house. She does claim that she's not that good at playing, so she's kind of embarrassed about getting a piano, isn't she? Yeah, or maybe just fundamentally lacking any confidence. So, But Phil has a banjo that he angrily plucks away at he when does. he's not otherwise engaged. So, as she begins to practice for the upcoming party with the governor, Phil is creaking around upstairs with the floorboards, mimicking her piano playing with some really quite pretty just banjo-plucking skills. It turns out that Phil is an amazing banjo player. Yeah, he's got uh, some real finger-picking. Got some finger-picking skills, you know. And uh, he's leaning over the banister, having kind of outdone her in his banjo playing so that she can barely even practice anymore so he's slowly and subtly twisting the knife isn't he yeah he's really he's turning the screws so now we you know for me retrospective now i said oh okay those comments in the restaurant were meant to be really nasty to his son so he's out to really damage rose and presumably little peter now the other thing about phil is when he's unable to sleep he sometimes goes out to the stable not just to beat his horse up but also to get Is that a way of saying... Oh, no, sorry, go on. To get... Well, (laughs) we may come to that. He gets Bronco Henry's memorial saddle off. It's like a little stand. (laughs) And he lovingly polishes it with, I don't know, saddle soap? I don't know. I don't know what you do. Dubbin or something? Uh, Oof. Sensuously polishes the smooth saddle top where Bronco Henry would have sat one one time, doesn't he? Kind of kink, isn't it? It's kind of like leather fetish going on there. Oh, yeah. He also he also creeps into a little kind of hidden hollow by going through a hollowed out tree, a burnt out kind of tree that he's hidden over with brushes. And it, there's a little kind of pond mm-hmm. in that area. Quite muddy, 
But this is apparently where he goes to bathe for some reason. Um, this first time he goes to bathe, he's not discovered by Peter, is he? No, no. We just see him get naked and muddy, don't we? As you say, George has got Rosa piano. She tries practicing. Phil is tormenting her. And she's obviously quite intimidated by Phil, isn't she? Yeah. And to the extent she starts drinking. Yeah, she gets driven to drink, yeah. I had a hard time believing that his treatment would drive her to drink like this. She obviously has had trouble with alcohol before because when she's in the diner serving, she's quite against drink. Or so we're saying Phil has the ability to recognise that she's already frail. I guess we're given to understand that he's a clever guy, aren't we? Yeah. Because in the dinner party, as you say, the governor arrives, their parents arrive, Phil is absent. I don't know, he's probably polishing his saddle or something. Well, he's told his brother, I, I ain't going, hasn't he? Because his brother says, you've got to scrub up, scrub up you, clean. You've got to wash up, yeah. Get yourself yeah. a tie on, essentially, is what it's implying. And, and, and Phil's like, I ain't doing it. They're serving cocktails with pink umbrellas in them, aren't they? Yeah. And they're discussing the Pharaoh's curse because Tutankhamun's tomb has just been uncovered. Yes. He's mid-twenties here. It's all the rage. But they're also discussing Phil. Even though George and Rose are throwing this party, Phil is the man of the hour, even though he's not there. They all seem to love him. He is, as you say, a Yale grad in classics, I think. Mm-hmm. And he has a reputation for being a conversationalist. Yeah, uh, a raconteur. Soiree. Like you say, like the grand piano, the ability to hold a conversation would be a big draw for a party, wouldn't it? Where there's nothing really else to do apart from dance and talk and drink, I guess. And he was even in a three-letter... It's not sorority, is it? What do you call it? For fraternity. Guys? Fraternity, yeah, yeah. Phi Beta Kappa, I think they say he was in. Phil does turn up, though, and as he does, he belittles Rose and said that he didn't wash up, so he didn't come for dinner. And ruins the party, and ruins the vibe, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He does ruin the... He's a buzzkill. (laughs) He's a complete fun sponge. And uh, says, Governor, don't come near me. I've just got off the horse. You don't want the smell of this. So that's a pointed jibe at his brother, isn't it? So, yeah. He ruins everything. And the governor and his wife make beat a hasty retreat. So the party is a damn squib, isn't it? Because his psychological tactics have just made Rose so nervous that she can't even yes. start to play the tune that she's been practising for so long. It's great acting from Kirsten Dunst. I wasn't that sympathetic to her before, but now I am at this point in the movie. She looks incredibly nervous. Yeah. She really looked like a rabbit in the headlights. Poor kind of thing, like. you know. And because uh, before I think oh, she's a bit ditzy, isn't she? She kind of bring it on herself, being so flighty whitey, turning you know turning to drink kind of stuff. There's no real reason for that. For five minutes of sarcastic comments a day, I'm you know I'm pretty sure a woman out on the prairies could get over that. But here, then it kind of hit home. Okay, he's really damaged her confidence. Act four, and Rose goes to pick up Peter from medical school. End of and first he's coming term, back. Or end of first semester. He's coming back to the ranch house, isn't he? The big house, the manor house, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I guess it'd be his first time staying there, won't it? Yeah, he's going to have to live in the house with Phil, who clearly has a a vendetta against in some senses. As he arrives, Phil is there with all the cowhands. He's castrating a bull while they pull the bull down. He's doing it with a knife. I wasn't really sure why we had this. Oh, really? Oh, it's very important. Because all the cowhands remark, you're not even doing that with gloves. Oh. And he, he actually nicks his... There we it, go. On the last cow, he said, I think he said, I've just castrated, you know, 150 head. And on the last one, you know, I 
cut my hair. Ah, it's to do the fact cut. that he does that gloveless. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. But we do actually see we see the act of you know big white balls slipping out of sacks. Kind of thing, so that was <laughs> oh lovely. That was lovely. Thank you for that. He looks up and he sees Pete getting out of the car or whatever, and he describes him as little Lord Fauntleroy, <laughs> which is a phrase that my mum used to say. Yeah, maybe not too kindly. I don't really know what it means. You not <laughs> seen the little Lord Fauntleroy movies and TV series? No. <laughs> what? Yeah. what is it? Did your mother never dress up in blue velvet suits from Marks and Spencer? <laughs> My mother was so proud of the blue velvet suits she put me in. Uh, I, Do you remember blue velvet suits from Marks and Spencer? Yes, uh, and I've got a feeling they might have been the kind of thing they got out for one of the for like the Silver Jubilee. Yes, precisely. When you were seven or eight years old, it was a thing to really Fact. dress your boy up. In, like a page uh, boy kind of Like thing. a page boy style and say, oh, it's a little Lord Fauntleroy. But who is F- Lord Fauntleroy? He's, Fun- he's a fictional character. Uh, fictional character. Yeah. Pre-1925, we're given to understand. He's kind of Although the reverse guess... of, you know, great expectations, I think. Like, he was born rich and maybe stays rich or becomes... Or he's put into a poor family or something like that. I don't know. Okay, okay. And where was he? And Is he American? No? I don't know. Don't know about that, actually. Hmm. Well, there's plenty of questions there. I suppose I know what it means from context. Mm. but So characterised... I, I, if you've ever seen Swats in, like, Beano and Dandy? Sure, yeah. yeah. So yeah, slightly yeah. booked teeth, page boy kind of splay your haircut kind of thing, and anachronistic... So, like, Jacob Rees-Mogg would be the modern equivalent. Yeah, but with more flouncy ruffles around the neck kind of thing. Okay, I see. <laughs> and, you know, a, a big, long sort of girly haircut. The cowhands have a bit of a field day with Peter arriving, don't they? They ride the horses around him, whooping and a hollering, kind of scaring him. Yeah, this was out of order, I thought. You know, I mean, he's escalating the intimidation, isn't he, of a young boy. But actually, Peter's no dev hand at the outdoors. I mean, he, he still lives in the Wild West himself, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. And he goes out, he sets a trap, brings a rabbit home, finds his mum drunk in bed, shows her the rabbit, and it kind of runs around the, the room a bit. They all think it's cute. And then one of the two servants, the scullery maid, I want to use that word, again, I don't know what that means. She hears that there is a rabbit in the house and takes a carrot up for it. As a pretext to flirt with Peter, I think, yeah. Oh, is that what she was going to do? Yeah, but he ain't interested. I mean... And it turns out he's got the rabbit pinned on his dissection table. (laughs) And she's, like, so American. She's so, so like, pumping spice lady. She's like, ooh. Like, like, what? But, you know, Which I don't understand because she works in a kitchen. Yeah, I mean, and it's 1925, so I just didn't... That's something about me I just didn't buy, you know. None of these people will be suggesting dark triangle problems with Peter. And they do, kind of, it's like, ooh, Peter, what's wrong with you? Like... No, but are we supposed to infer dark triangle issues? Well, I've discussed before the dark triangle has no, absolutely no empirical background or basis to sure. it. Sure, I agree. I'm with you on that. But it's still a thing that people believe. But he's not torturing an animal, is he? He's, he's killed an animal for a purpose. No, and he's going to be a doctor. But it is, you know, to dissect. So He's uh, learning anatomy. We, yeah. we later he see some shots that show Peter as being somewhat detached. You might say Aspie, as yeah, a non-sinister sure. way. Or maybe there's a sinister reflection that he's a bit of a sociopath and a bit of a psychopath. I think it is, you know. We're supposed to code this for Dark Triangle. The cowhands have all gone to skinny dip in a creek. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's what you call rivers in, in the US. Possibly also in New Zealand. Phil has gone to his private place, and I mean that literally and figuratively, because he's got his silk wank rag. About to whip out his scarf, yeah. yeah. Which is his mentor's. It's Bronco Henry's scarf, we presume. Does he say that? I don't know. No, we're later led to understand that. But he shoves it down his pants, doesn't he, at some stage during the afternoon. But Peter has found the hollow tree that he hides his hidden place in. He finds his little kind of hidden grove and there's another hollow tree where he puts stuff this is where his box of bronco henry stuff is including a load of fitness magazines which are i think 1925 term for porno mags which are well they're essentially bodybuilding atlas magazines yeah yeah it's a lot of guys aren't there a lot of guys flexing poses yeah. Whether or not you'd view them erotically or not is really, I guess, dependent on your orientation, isn't it? No, Paul. I think if you keep them in a box under a tree in your secret place, then they're definitely erotic, oh, right. aren't they? You don't. If you if you keep them on the shelf in the study, then they're fitness studies. But if you keep them hidden in your secret wank glen, then they're definitely pornographic. But I have a stash of New Scientist uh, <laughs> special editions. What, in the, in the toilet? In, in a little box that I just keep, just keep them separate because they're, they're precious to me. But yeah, I take your point, yeah. So, so it, it's a stash, isn't it? Phil catches him, doesn't he? And Come back here, you, ch- you. Chases him out of his... You little bitch, he says. Secret place, yeah. So both Phil and her son, Peter, are now aware that Rose has a serious alcoholic problem. At some point she collapses, doesn't she, while she's doing something terrible with the cowhides. <laughs> chapter five. Is that chapter five? Oh, we're getting there. Oh. Chapter five starts with all the cowhands putting their bedding out on the ground. Is that airing your bedding out? Is that Why do they do that? Is that to know. kill things with UV or something? Anyway. I guess they didn't know about UV, but sunlight is the best disinfectant, as they say, don't they? A lot of people are arriving for some reason, like they're having a sort of mini Glastonbury or something, but there's a lot of people camping. Peter arrives on a wagon, attracting a lot of sort of cat calls, people calling him a Nancy, don't they? And Phil acts suddenly quite protective of him, and he calls him over. Yeah. And starts to show him how to braid ropes from strips of leather. It's obvious to us that, Phil has seen Rose on a downward descent and thinks if I arrest her son away from her, that's going to yeah. send her into, you know, terminal alcoholism. Do you think that's his design at this point? Yeah. She's watching him later summon Phil into the barn where he closes the door. He gets Pete to sit on a saddle on the trestle. I think it's the Bronco Henry saddle. It is the Bronco Henry saddle. Now, she could have peeked through the, you know, the cracks and the shutters, couldn't she? What, to see what they were doing? Yeah. Well, instead, she probably goes and has a, you know, hits Good the Good old worry about it. Thank you. She is flawed, isn't she? She's flawed as a mother. But then who wouldn't be if you're alcoholic? You know, it's difficult to be a mother and be alcoholic, isn't it? He is a, a grown man now, Peter, so her mothering duties are all but over. Certainly in the they? era, yeah, 1925. He's, he's way beyond grown, isn't he? He's way past 14, so... She's found herself a new man, having been widowed, which, you know, again, that's perhaps not all that common, so she counts herself lucky, really. 
Phil has been talking to Peter about going out and seeing the initials carved that he thinks were from the Lois and Clark expedition. Over that there Which, mountain. What do you see when you look at that mountain, Pete? I see a barking uh, dog. Oh, a my God. Dog. And I think this is a real pivotal moment for Phil. He's like, oh, God, this kid can see mountains like I can. Yeah, so. because this is obviously what he's been seeing when he's looking into the mountains. Yeah. And he claims that the only other person who's ever seen this same image was... Bronco Henry, his mentor. So Phil is kind of, maybe there's two intentions here. One is to hurt Rose, pulling her son away from her. But now he's maybe thinking, this kid, this kid I can take under my wing, you know. He can become, you know, my little acolyte. I can mentor him. I can mentor him. I can do everything I can do with the son that I don't have. Yeah. Ah, this is the point where I get to the movie that is, I feel, a weak point about the movie. Okay. He does the various things, doesn't he? You know, he teaches him how to... Teaches him to ride. Ride a yeah. horse. Cruelly, yeah. but attentively. And in no unfairer way than he would teach any of the farmhands to do. And uh, he starts uh, preparing a... Is it a lasso or a, 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 just a rope? A leather it's a rope. rope. He's making, making a rope for him. But it's a posh rope. It's a riding rope. It's a leather rope made out of cowhide, isn't it? I think you might call them a lariat, but I'm not certain of that. It's the reins, isn't it? Or something like that. Or... Or something I similar. I don't know. No clue. But you need to have cowhide. You need to have treated cowhide in order to do it. Here's the thing. Because now we see Peter riding off on a solo expedition with a little haversack of stuff. He goes off-roading in the horse, quite adventurously so. Eventually comes upon a cow carcass. Yeah. There. He gets off his horse, he goes down, he puts rubber gloves on. And like a medical student... He slices into it. I mean, he knows about the anthrax. Presumably he's a medical student. That's why he's got the gloves on you. Presumably. The next day, Phil and Pete set out on an expedition and they go building a fence and stuff. While, while Phil builds a fence, Pete is picking flowers, oh. would you believe? Sadly, whilst they're moving a load of logs, a rabbit's legs gets broken by the logs. Now, is and... this a metaphor standing for his mother? I don't know. Hmm. Or is it a metaphor standing for Phil? I don't know, in the end. Pete goes to comfort the rabbit, doesn't he? Mm. Before presumably putting it out of his misery. Phil starts talking about more Bronco Henry wisdom. And Pete is talking about his boozy mum. And Pete reveals that he found his alcoholic father and cut the rope. hanging. Yeah. And he had to cut him down. Uh, and again, up in Phil's estimation, what a strong little boy this is. And we've got some glimpses of that after he's been bullied by the cowhands. He's kind of right back out there into his hula hoop. He's not ever crying, is he, by his experiences out here. So he's, he's a tough a, guy, yeah. He's a tough little kid, yeah. Now, at about this point, I think Rose sees some couple of Native Americans come. Asking for cowhides. The uh, housemaid says Phil won't, will never let them have any. Yeah, it's just the policy them. of the house that Phil says, no, don't give them away. I'm just going to burn them. He's going to burn them, yeah. And Rose is firstly shocked by this attitude and secondly obviously wants to get one over on Phil so she runs after them and says yeah you can have the cowhides you know take them all in exchange for some beautiful 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 gloves, gloves. Like kid leather gloves aren't they gloves okay but Phil is furious because he had intended to use some of those hides to finish his rope for Peter before Peter goes back he wants to have a quick word with her but school. I think she's collapsed on the way back to the house hasn't she or something she has yeah she's her alcoholism has really got the better of her. So, Peter comforts Phil with news that he has some rawhide of his own 
that they, mm. he can finish the rope with. Because we know it's from the cow that he found. That night, <laughs> they go into the barn together, and uh-huh. Phil continues braiding the rope, and Phil reveals that when he was about Pete's age, Bronco Henry saved his life by cuddling up to him body-to-body heat in a bedroll together on the mountainside. And Pete asks, naked? Which is not answered, yeah. All the while he's sensuously braiding this rope, pulling it taut and wrapping it tighter around his his wrist, which has a cut in it that we've seen. From the moment when they tried to catch the rabbit kind of thing. Fade to black, next morning. Phil is late out of bed for the first time in his life, presumably. Mm. And his hand is badly cut and looks possibly infected. He comes down dressed very smartly because George is going to drive him into town to go to the doctor. Before he leaves, he insists that he's going to give the finished rope to Peter as his gift. And then fade to black, and the next scene is in the funeral parlour, and George is choosing a casket for Phil. He's very scrubbed up. Who has died of what the doctors think sounds a lot like anthrax. Mm. But George says he's never handled disease animals. He didn't oh, do he's that. always so careful about it. One thing he didn't do. And then finally we get a shot of Peter, presumably in his bedroom. And he was looking through all of his textbooks, wasn't he? Looking for... We're carefully, tentatively, with gloved hands, handling the rope. And the rope. In a box, yeah. So clearly he took the rawhide from a diseased animal. Intentionally. And gave it to Phil. Yeah. The last thing we see is Peter looking down from his bedroom window at his mum, who now seems much happier, getting in a car with George. He turns around and sort of with a smile on his face. And the words perhaps in the beginning of the film might come back, you know, that, that he's now... The Bible reading comes back now, doesn't it, from Psalms 22. Deliver my soul oh. from the sword and my darling from the power of the dog. The power of the dog, Wow. So he loved his mum. He did everything to protect his mum. And he was a sly, very sly, incoming cowboy, wasn't he? Did away with the bad guy. Here's a question, Paul, right? Over all the movies that we've seen, some of the movies that we've watched have been adaptations of books. Yeah. And many of them have been, you know, original screenplays. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a real big difference between the ones that are adaptations of books which is all of the screenwriter written films follow a kind of standardized hollywood vocabulary of film don't they they do very similar things the stories are often very similar Mm -hmm. there's usually a happy ending etc you know there's a a set of tropes they always pick from but the ones that are from books are often very very much more complicated and ambiguous and very rarely follow the set tropes and ideas that, that movies normally adhere to. Don't yeah. you think? And this is no exception, right? Because Also, I noticed I, pacing tends to be standardised with yes. straight screenplay movies. But I would agree, generally, yeah. yeah. You could argue it's just a better standard of writing. Mm-hmm. You could also argue, though, a novel is written for a book yes. to be read. I tend to do the second one of these, actually. Uh, yeah, a movie time. is written for its medium, mm. and it has... As you say, deliberate pacing in a certain way that gets you through 90 minutes, two hours, doesn't it? Yeah. Whereas a book, very difficult to fit a lot of things in. 
you know, a lot of the interiority of the characters has to be expressed. You can't see into people's heads in the same way in a mm. movie, although obviously good actors and good screenwriting can accommodate a lot of that. But most importantly, I mean, in this particular example, in this story, it's very ambiguous who the good guys, who the bad guys are, isn't it? Or, or is it? Maybe I'm being an idiot. Maybe it's not, not at all ambiguous. Well, I, I mean, are Peter's actions justified? No, they're not. I mean, <laughs> well, so we have really. to say Peter is a bad guy, don't we? Phil at no point does anything like actually criminal. He is a he's a dick, certainly. In today's in today's law, maybe it would count as criminal harassment. But at the most, that's a community order, isn't it? <laughs> He certainly doesn't deserve to die of anthrax. And, you know, the fact that Rose, he didn't drive, well, he did drive her to alcoholism, but Rose was complicit in that. She's got herself to blame for doing that. Just because somebody's bullying you doesn't mean that you have the right to take leave of your senses and and do stupid things, does it? So, I mean, Phil's not a great guy, but he's not that bad a guy. So here's an interpretation that I'd read, which is the the behaviour of Phil during the film in terms of his reluctance to bathe particularly near people or with other people around is sometimes a symptom of post-traumatic stress from sexual abuse mm. sufferers implying perhaps maybe that's what's stated in the movie in some ways that Bronco Henry had sexually abused him when he was about Peter's age mm-hmm. arguably all of his behaviour is stems from that trauma that yeah. he's dealing with if true, he's certainly the victim from beginning to end of this movie, isn't he? He is. Uh, I mean, in the movie, it's pretty clear. We've shown Peter realising what's happened or the connection that he has with Bronco Henry, discovering the pornographic materials, that kind of thing, and using that to manipulate, ultimately, Phil to his death. So, so yeah, I mean, in some sense, Phil is very much the victim in many parts of his life here. What I was, what I was just like a little bit... It's not her. It's not her directorship, or right? it's not. It's not the writing itself. It's just a Western tendency to see all mentorship, and you know, all friendship between old men and young men as potential grooming. Couldn't we see that? You know, not having a son, he'd probably want to groom he'd groom his kid into the ways of the cowboy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And equally, didn't Peter want a father figure? Exactly. Uh, so, and I, I think credit to her, she kind of. I mean, obviously, she's towing a line where she suggests that the intimacy might be intentional grooming. I've read a lot of reviews where they just say, Phil just intends to sexually groom this child. And I don't know if that's really what's being hinted at here. Well, this is the ambiguity, isn't it? Mm. It, Yeah, on the one hand, it does sort of seem like it's the old trope of repeats, doesn't it? He was abused by Bronco Henry, so he's trying to do the same or he's trying to break it by being nice to the kid, ultimately. Because it's changed, doesn't Equally, it? I mean, they seem to also genuinely be into one another. Is that, or am I reading yeah. too much into that? I mean, is there not a connection between them? There is a real connection, yeah. yeah. So, are we supposed to think that they had sex in the barn on that last no, night? No, I, I, no, I think, you know, we're not even supposed to think that there's strong sexual static between them in actual fact well this comes back to the question of whether peter is gay whether he's just coded as you say gay or just coded neurodivergent in some ways i don't know so here's a problem with this film is 
in one interpretation, lots of road signs, but which way are we going with it? Yeah, for me, in one interpretation, this is following a very well trodden path of the the gay coded character is like a a scheming serial killer. Yes, <laughs> well, not a serial killer, but a scheming killer anyway. Which I'm not sure I quite. I'm not sure I like. <laughs> well, I don't think it's accurate. More importantly, you know. But yeah, the idea, you know, the weird or the bad. It's just, well, I mean, it extends look, beyond gay people, doesn't be... it? It extends towards, you know, ethnic differences sure. or any yeah, kind okay. of difference. James Bond, disfigured, you know, f- facial dif- disfigurement. Weird makes you bad. And there is some psychological evidence to suggest that traumatic experiences do make us sometimes worse. Evil. Than, like, you know, <laughs> not evil, but, you know, perhaps, you know, with behavioural problems later on in life. But at the same time, it can be a transformative experience. And I think what we're exploring here was the fact that, you know, Phil started down a, a poor road here, which was to drag this son, drag a son away from a mother, but was kind of converted, if you like. He was overtaken by... Overtaken his, by, yeah. you know... Uh, whichever way you look at it, you know. Unrequited well, homosexual love, you know, unrequited... Not, not unrequited, if you like, what's the word? Just homoerotic bodyship or father-son kind of whatever kind of love it is. And we don't distinguish loves in the West, and I think it's a shame, a shame that we don't. It's not really clear what kind of love is happening there, but he's overtaken by love, isn't he? I also find it difficult to believe that an 18-year-old kid, you know, fresh out of waiting in his mum's diner and just starting medical school, has the wherewithal to pull all this together. I mean, first of all... That's why we're given the black triangle moments to show that one... Or, or maybe, because, I, I, again, she's towing a line here very cleverly, isn't she? The black triangle moments with the rabbit, the lack of emotion after his bullet, where he just... He hooves once and he's a bit agitated, a bit aspy about it. But the next time, after they bully him the next time, he's kind of nonchalant about all this, isn't he? And he's kind of confident. So she's trying to say some black triangle things, I think, about Peter. But he's supposed to have figured Pete out mm. to the extent that he knows exactly what to do. When he's going to gonna cut his side. hand, because I don't think dipping your hand in anthrax water is going to kill you unless you cut, is it? Or it might do. He'd have to arrange that his hand was cut. Mm. He, he'd have to find a cow that had anthrax. Not sure how he'd do that. Because he found yeah. it by random, didn't he? At random, yeah. I mean, he was out on the trail, sort of at the edge of his ability as a horseman. And how, know, did he he test, this how did he test it at anthrax? How? Yeah. There were no tests for it back then. It could be any disease. He dissects the cow in such a way that he doesn't get anthrax and he's confident he won't. And I don't know how I would do that. But he knows that when he gives the stuff to Phil, he expects Phil to catch it from a cut in his hand. But, I mean, it's already been cured, this, hasn't it? It's already been treated, this hide that he gives to Phil. No, I think he's just left it in water or something. Whatever you do, oh. I don't know. Just kept it, hasn't it? And it wasn't long anyway. I mean, this whole story, I don't know, takes place in a, over a few weeks, doesn't it? Yeah, so that's the other thing, the timeline here, you know, the planning. You probably could plan this out, but it, it would take more than a few, you know... A, Years. A, yeah. <laughs> it would take a, more than a vacation from college, wouldn't it? So the, there, there think, are too many conveniences yeah. here, aren't there? The writer of the book, Thomas Savage, I think we said, wasn't it? Mm. According to his Wikipedia entry, he was married, but... It said something about him having relationships with men. It said something confusing in the Wikipedia article I read about his daughter saying he shouldn't be considered bisexual. I don't know whether that, what that means is he was actually gay, but he just happened, you know, he had got married to this woman. He obviously cared about Very his wife. Very common at though. the time, yeah. People who were essentially, if you like, 
ident- well, to themselves identifying completely as gay would, would go through the sham of a marriage, wouldn't they? So, And he did live through this period. So, I mean, I think his stories are written with some sense of, you know, uh, awareness about these times, certainly. Mm. But perhaps this story does speak a lot of his own repressed kind of sexuality. But it's not a very a flattering picture. <laughs> I mean, I guess that was the social circumstances he found himself in in many ways wasn't it mm. but lots of i mean cr- critics love this movie i think we've talked about it now have we have we talked through or... i think we talked through we'll critics love this scores, movie yeah. audiences didn't necessarily kind of you know on a knife edge one of the complaints i've got from a reviewer from variety is that this is programmatic and sparse there's just not enough happening for it and i think you've identified that that might be because one it's a mood movie isn't it okay mm. beautiful mood yeah. shots but two, it's from a novel, so the pacing would be different. But I, I, I agree with the idea that it's programmat- programmatic. You know, there's not really that much happening in this movie, I don't think. Apart from not particularly well signpost plot twists about gloves and anthrax. <laughs> uh, and the reviewers, it's one of the, because, you know, often I miss entire bits of movies. I didn't have to watch this twice. I got it all the way through. But the reviewer didn't. He's a professional reviewer. And he said, you know, I had to watch this again. To work out the last, you know, was it part five? What part five was all about? Hmm. Nuance definitely, sparse also. I, I kind of think they kind of balance balance each other out in terms of benefits. So I can see why audiences didn't re- didn't wholeheartedly as a group take to this. That some people loved it, and for some people this is a bit a bit Marmite plus Bovril. It's a bit of a twist ending, isn't it? It takes a left turn because I think the audience is supposed to be thinking their sympathies lie with Peter for most of the film. Yes, that's supposed to be it. But at the end, it turns out he's a murderous maniac. But then we only get 30 seconds of him being the murderous maniac. Do you see what I'm saying? And at the same time, in some senses... The film doesn't resolve that change in identity of one of the major characters. We need need at least three or four minutes at the end. Maybe going down to mum... And, you know, hugging her and then maybe, you know, causing her to fall over in the kitchen kind of thing. We need to, we need to see that he's, he's evil. His evil is going to continue. Yeah. He doesn't, yeah, he doesn't suffer any consequences. Indeed, the film seems to be rewarding him for his action. So it's, We've got rid of Phil. Life can now go on. But happily. it is the Wild West, isn't it? So Wild. Let's do acting then, because... Oh, brilliant. I, mean, I, I think the acting was great. Kirsten Dunst was amazing. I, I um, Yeah, I, I loved it. Everybody in it, but I would say my your vote goes off of Kirsten. Why? Just her, her portrayal of somebody who's frail and nervous. Yeah, yeah. I think she did a great, great job, a great yeah. job in a in a difficult role. Obviously, Cumberbatch did a good job putting on an American accent. Mm. I think he learnt to play the banjo. I think he did a lot of method acting. Apparently, he, everyone kind of hated him on set because Jane Campion, the director, said, <laughs> "This is Benedict Cumberbatch, but you won't meet him until after the the rap." <laughs> <laughs> Peter played by Cody I thought was superb he just manages to give a depth to Peter an unspoken depth that isn't there in the in the dialogue or, or, or you know in the directions in the director's directions he just really imbues this character with a depth that we don't quite see coming yeah. so it's an 8 for acting for me for me a 9 I really love the acting I thought you know it's a definite strong point for this movie so plot and storyline. Plot and storyline. I've got problems with, you know, how male-male love is represented here. Different kinds, okay. It's not clear. It's too ambiguous. And that's playing, I think, 
potentially on prejudices. As you say, you know, the way that gay guys here always turn out to be the serial killer kind of thing. And the coding here, coding for gay, coding for Aspie. What's all that doing there? But too simple a plot, I think, apart from the twist at the end. And not just not quite paced. Yeah, we want moments without dialogue and we want some beautiful shots but we don't want the whole movie to be at that pace unfortunately so for me that's a weak point six i just don't buy it i don't buy it Mm. and and if it is true that if it is true that you know phil is is a victim and was sexually abused and he's coming to terms with it why is this not pointed on the movie Maybe it's not in the original text, but maybe that's the interpretation. But this is the thing. This movie, this story, this book reads very differently now than it would have done in 1967, Mm. I'm sure. It's therefore, it's a product of its time, and it's not a totally happy transition, I don't think. So I'll give it a six for a sort of bad taste in the mouth. Yeah, I think his awareness of his issues and why he's writing it Made it kind of makes this in the mm. modern day found found art, doesn't it? It's kind of it does, native yeah, yeah. art, isn't it? Whereas she's taken in an intelligent modern spin on it, but she hasn't really. We have to be Deus Ex Machina at some point in the movie to understand that she's done that, and she never makes that explicit. We need an explicit step out from from the source material, and she doesn't really step out enough. And she needs to she needs to come down on one side here. She, too much is left up to well, it could be that or this, and yeah. That's great to know, but ultimately we're telling a story and we need to be told what the mystery is at the end. And we're never told, are we? Why they're doing this and what's their motivation. So, yeah, what did you give it, Sorry Rich? A six. six. Story. Me too. Okay. We've got to do, do mood. Cinematography. Yeah, mood and cinematography. Okay. And music by Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead. Oh, yeah. That's true. Music's very interesting. It's got a very... No, sort of non-melodic, atonal kind of staccato. I mean, this is supposed to be a psychological thriller, isn't it? So the music really helps ramp up that tension. I found the, the, the psychological tension to be a little too palpable at times. It was just too much, you know. I didn't want to feel... Mm. I didn't want to feel that disquiet that, that Rose is <laughs> obviously feeling, and I just felt it too strongly. Like Phil's incredibly menacing, isn't he? That's a problem yeah. throughout the whole thing. Yeah. But the imagery of an amazing New Zealand standing in for Montana was really good. <laughs> Obviously, Jane Campion is a New Zealander. So that's partly why they did uh-huh. it. I guess tax breaks probably came into it as well. But one of the reasons the location scouts picked that was they saw a mountain with a shadow that could be interpreted as a barking dog. I couldn't see the barking dog. I paused and I couldn't see it, unfortunately. That's the reason the movie is called that, apart from the Bible quote at the end. The power of the dog. Because that is the moment, isn't it, when Phil really turns when he kind of thinks he's got a moment of simpatico with, with Peter for the first time. And again, that's the other thing about, the other unbelievable thing about the story, right, is how did Peter clock that? How could he have known that he was seeing like a dog in the mountains? Is that believable? No. And maybe it's explained in the book. But for cinematography, I'll give it, I'll give it an eight. Good. Moon of cinematography, I'm going to go a little bit lower, 7.5, because I felt there's a lack of utility to all those shots at times. And overall, Paul? Overall... Uh, an award-winning movie, highly regarded by critics, some critics. Well, nearly all critics, but not audiences. You know, if you look at the scores from critics, we're talking four and five out of five. Okay, 
if you look at audiences, generally, well, I think the only people watching it now are people who like it anyway. So, but to begin with, a real kind of cleft uh, down the middle in audiences, like love it, love it, loathe it kind of stuff. I'm really in the middle on this. I don't love it. I don't loathe it. I was impressed by quite a lot of it, particularly the acting, particularly the cinematography. The attempts to put a psychological spin on essentially what is a Westerner, one guy coming into town, and uh, there's essentially, if you like, a very subtle and underhanded shootout going on here, isn't there? I kind of liked all that, but at the same time, it drags and... There's just not enough happening, is there? So for me, a final score of 7 out of 10. It's ironically a bit of a bummer. Give it a 7. <laughs> so a good movie, but, uh, you know, don't cancel your plans to watch it, is what I'd say. I mean, seven's quite high, isn't it, though? Yeah. It's a worthy movie, yeah, but it just might not be to your taste. You might not come away with a strong sense of uplifting moral fortitude. There's one thing we've not discussed. I know we, we shouldn't be talking about it now, just given scores. But gloves is a metaphor for fighting. Oh. Dirty. Yeah. Taking the gloves off, you mean? Well, that kind of thing. Taking gloves off means what? Fighting straightforwardly, doesn't it? Yeah. Keeping gloves so, off you know, means fighting slyly and dirtily, doesn't it? With a horseshoe in your glove kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So gloves as a metaphor here. I'm not sure what it's doing. Blah, 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 blah. Just one thing to say. But... Done dusted. Let's move on to next week, if that's okay, Rich. Okay. Right. It's your turn to choose, and there's four that I think there's there's a good chance that there's something you might want amongst this <laughs> cornucopia. Okay, dash cam, which is dash cam. yeah, it's 2021, yeah. I think, a COVID lockdown movie about taking on board elderly hitchhikers. Elderly okay. hitchhikers. Yeah. I didn't know okay. it was elderly. Okay. Okay. Escape Room, Tournament of Champions. We reviewed Escape Room eons ago, and uh, this wasn't available. It is now available on Netflix. So Okay, okay. If you've got a subscription, that therefore means free of charge. A white girl, okay, about a 13-year-old girl who disappears into the London night and things become progressively more terrifying for her. Okay, and Good Time, not quite sure what that was. I did know what it was an hour ago. I've just gone and forgotten. All right, Paul. So here's a simple question to you. Mm -hmm. Do you think we need a bit more found footage in our lives or not? I don't know. No, I I don't think we need any more found footage. Okay. In which case, we're going for escape room. Yes. After the heavyweight, the power of the dog. Yeah. I just want like a a cracker's horror thingy. Too much Christ's, Christ College sort of movie club this week. Yes. That's exactly what I want. Okay. I want some sunshine to break through the clouds. So it's called Escape Room, the Tournament of... Champions. Champignons. Champignons. Mushroom Tournament. Mushroom Tournament. Not to be confused with the many other movies called Escape Room, probably. Which I guess we'll delve into next time. (laughs) So do join us next time for Series 4, Episode 3, Escape Room, Tournament of Champions. Thank you for enduring. Goodbye. (laughs) Ciao for now. See you on the next one. Bye. Thank you.